Our Bible reading today is, is taken from Psalm 102. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2 and 18 through the rest of the chapter. That's Psalm 102. I encourage you to turn there with me. Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call, answer me quickly. And overtake. Verse 18. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth. To hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on throughout through all generations. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word here this morning. I'm going to give you fair warning. It's 25 to 12. I'm not going to have you out of here in 10 minutes, so just sit back, relax, and be content. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Job at this time, please. If you are involved in our Bible reading for life, or read the Bible for life program, you will have read through 20 some odd chapters of Job in this past week. We are going to finish Job and get into um, Exodus in this coming week. The reason Job is there where it is in our Bible reading program, it's because it's probably one of the oldest books in the Bible. Let's go to Job chapter 23. Many of you are familiar with the story. By the way, if you're not involved in this Bible reading program, I wouldn't ask you or urge you or invite you to get involved with it as we are journey through this Bible reading, I read the Bible for life, uh, reading this uh, through the Bible in, in this year and, and as we learn and talk about it. By the way, for those of you that are here that were involved in the two small groups that I was leading, one on Thursday night, one on Thursday morning, we are going to pick up again this Thursday. So Thursday morning here at the church at 10 and then Thursday evening at my house at 7. All right, Job 23. Job 
was going through life, everything was good, and life just blew apart for, for him. And uh, we'll talk about what happened here in just a little bit. So here's Job's answer to these guys that have been giving him free advice that he didn't ask for. He said, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand, God's hand, is heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold." My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my faith, face. Rather, How do you deal with suffering as a Christian? And it's an enigma that has bothered people for many, many years. Now, I don't want to talk in a theoretical sense this morning a whole lot. I want to talk about real people and real things. This is a little book that was given to me, Phyllis, by your dad. And he gave this to me a long time ago. Now, Phyllis's mom uh, had diabetes, and she wound up having both of her legs amputated and passed away because uh, of the complications from that disease. And so her dad sought for answers, and he got all kinds of free advice and unsought-for advice and all kinds of things from other people. He thought, like, why is this happening to us? Why does this have to happen to me? And so when, when Stu left, it was Stu Medler, and, and when Stu left here, he gave me some of his stuff. And one of them was a, a motorcycle manual from a 1940-something Harley-Davidson, which is really cool. Uh, and then he also gave me this little book. Uh, and I want to read you a story out of this book. Again, real people. And, and this book was written in the, the 1970s, so it's a little bit dated, but it's still nevertheless true. The author writes, Several years ago I heard a frantic call for help from close friends John and Claudia Claxton. They were newlyweds in their early 20s, beginning life together in the Midwest. I had never seen love affect anyone as thoroughly as it had affected John Claxton. In two years of engagement to Claudia, he had changed from a cold, hard cynic into an optimist intent on enjoying the adventure of marriage. The letter I received from John troubled me as soon as I opened it. Errors and scratches marked his usually neat handwriting. He explained, excuse my writing, I guess it shows how I'm fumbling for words. I don't know what to say. 
The Claxton's young marriage had run into a roadblock far bigger than both of them. Claudia had contracted Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the lymph glands, and had been only given a 50% chance to live. Within a week, surgeons had cut her from armpit to belly and removed every visible trace of the disease. She was left stunned and weak and lying in a hospital bed. At the time, John was working as a chaplain's assistant in a local hospital. His compassion for other patients dipped dangerously. In some ways, he explained, I could understand better what other patients were undergoing. But I didn't care anymore. I only cared about Claudia. I wanted to scream at them, stop that sniveling, you idiots. You think you've got problems. My wife may be dying right now. Both John and Claudia were strong Christians, but even in spite of that, anger against God surged up. Anger against a partner they loved who had turned on them. God, why us? They cried. Have you teasingly doled out one scant year of marriage to set us up for this? Cobalt treatments caused Claudia's body to deteriorate. Beauty fled her. She was constantly tired, her skin turned dark, her hair fell out, and her throat was always swollen and raw. She regurgitated nearly everything she ate. For a time, doctors suspended treatment because her throat had become so swollen she couldn't swallow. Each day, Claudia would think about God and about her suffering, especially in the treatment room. In that chill steel, steel room, she would be laid out flat on a table, naked, where she would listen to the whir and clack of machinery bombarding her with invisible particles. Each day of the radiation aged her body by months. At first, Claudia had expected that Christian visitors would console and comfort her, but their voices were too confusing. A deacon from her church solemnly told her to reflect on what God was trying to teach her. Surely there's something in your life which is displeasing to God, he said. You must have stepped out of his will somewhere. These things just don't just happen. What is God telling you? A lady came, a scatterbrained, plump widow who saw her calling as a professional cheerleader to the sick. She brought flowers, sang hymns, and quoted happy psalms about running brooks and mountains clapping their hands. Whenever Claudia's illness was mentioned, this lady quickly changed the subject. Her approach was to drive out the suffering with her cheer and goodwill. But after she left, the flowers faded, the hymns seemed dissonant and muted, and Claudia remained to face another day of pain. Another lady dropped by who had faithfully watched Oral Roberts, Catherine Kuhlman, and the 700 Club over the years. She told Claudia that healing was the only escape. Sickness is never God's will, she insisted. The Bible says as much. The devil is at work, and God will wait until you can muster up enough faith to believe that you'll be healed. Remember, Claudia, faith can move mountains, and that includes Hodgkin's disease. Truly believe that you'll be healed, and God will answer your prayers. The next few mornings, as Claudia lay in the sterile cobalt treatment room, she tried to muster up faith. She had enough faith to believe that God was able to heal her, but she didn't know how to convince God that her faith was genuine and strong. Faith wasn't like a muscle which she could enlarge through exercise. It was slippery, theoretical, hard to deal with. The whole notion of mustering up faith seemed so awfully exhausting to her, and she could never decide how to go about it. Perhaps the most spiritual lady in Claudia's church came to read aloud books about praising God for everything, 
Claudia, you need to come to the place where you can say, God, I love you for making me suffer like this. It is your will. You know the best for me. And I just praise you for loving me enough to allow me to experience this. In all things, including this, I give thanks. As she pondered the words, Claudia's mind filled with the ferocious, gruesome visions of God. She imagined a figure in the shape of a troll, big as the universe, who delighted in squeezing helpless humans between his fingernails, pulverizing them with his fist, dashing them against sharp stones. The figure would keep torturing these humans until they cried out, God, I love you for doing this to me. The idea repulsed Claudia. She could not worship or love such a god. Yet another visitor, Claudia's pastor, made her feel she was on a select mission. He told her, you, Claudia, can participate in Christ's sufferings. You have been appointed to suffer for him, and he will reward you. God chose you because of your great strength and integrity, just as he chose Job. And he is using you as an example. The faith of others may increase because of your response. Sometimes, in a self-pitying sort of way, the thought of being a privileged martyr appealed to Claudia. Other times when the aches crescendoed, when food was painfully vomited up, and when her facial features aged, Claudia would call out, God, why me? There are millions of Christians stronger and more honorable than I. Couldn't you choose one of them? I too visited Claudia during her illness. She repeated for me the parcels of advice which well-meaning Christians had left her. I listened to her bewildered response. She didn't know what kind of lesson she was supposed to be learning, nor did she know how to have more faith. But she was sure of one thing, her happy world with John was disintegrating, and above all, she didn't want it to end. So why was Claudia moaning in a hospital bed while I stood beside her healthy? What new, Christian, what new words of Christian advice could I add? Something inside me recoiled as I heard the cliched comments to sufferers floating through the hospital corridors. Is Christianity supposed to confuse the sufferer or rather help him? So the question is, where is God when it hurts? The answer is, Sometimes there are just no answers. Job ran into that. And Phyllis's dad concluded, he wrote a couple of things in the foreword or in the front of this book. And he said, how do we or can we relate specific scripture with suffering? There is no pat answer. And he's right. But he said, pain is not the point, it's how we react that is important. And the common premise that we have and that we find in the book of Job is that there has to be a reason for suffering. Sometimes it's Satan. And you know the story of Job, how the sons of God came to present themselves before God and Satan was among them and God says, where have you been? And and Satan says, from wandering back and forth in the earth. And God says, well, have you seen my servant Job? He's a good man. He shuns evil and, and, and he fears God. And, and Satan said, yeah, but the only reason he's good is because you're good to him. Let me at him and I'll show you something different. And God said, you're on. 
And so here was this cosmic, it seems like this cosmic power struggle between God and Satan. And yet that wasn't the point of it. But sometimes Satan is involved. There was a woman in Jesus' life who had been crippled for 18 years. <coughs> and sometimes we think, well, the, there's got to be something that causes, something that causes, because if we can find whatever caused it, we can fix it. It's like my, my pickup this week. It was leaking oil. And so, so okay, if it's leaking oil, there's got to be something that caused it. And if I can figure out what caused it, we can fix it. And we did. But there was this man born blind that Jesus ran into. And the disciples asked him, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? It's got to be somebody's fault. And Jesus said, neither one sinned. It was just part of, of what God's trying to do, and so there's no reason for it. And some people say, well, the reason where people suffer is because God's trying to tell us something, and we're not listening. You see, we're thinking if there's a reason for the suffering, then we can fix it. We can either rebuke Satan, we can repent from sin, or we can get away from bad people. We can pay more attention to God so that he can lighten up on us, or we can get more faith and get the healing. In fact, Job's friend, a guy by the name of Eliphaz, that was his position. He said to Job, and Job's three friends came to him and they said, Job, obviously you've done something wrong. You've done something stupid somewhere along the line. The answer to your problem is that you need to figure out what you did and then you need to repent and you need to fix it and then everything will be okay. But The problem with that kind of thinking is, if we can fix it, how come we haven't fixed it? Well, we're thousands of years after Job, and people are still suffering. People are still struggling. We haven't figured it out. We're not fixing it. And Job was frustrated in chapter 21. Like, like Job's friend said to him, I said, look at all these bad people. Like, like God punishes bad and rewards good. Therefore, if God is punishing you, you've been bad. And if you want God to reward you, you need to be good. And Job's argument with that is, listen, what you're saying and what I'm seeing is not matching up. And in Job 21, uh, Job says to his friends, he says, um, um, he says, verse 7, 21, verse 7, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes, their homes are safe and free from fear. He said, the wicked are dying, fat, dumb, and happy, and I'm being persecuted. It's not right. What you're saying, what the friends were saying, Job, you've done something bad, you need to repent, and if you repent, and if you're righteous, then you're going to be, you're going to be fat, dumb, and happy. You're going, to be, you're going to live a wealthy life, and you're going to be healthy, and all, Job, all you need to do is get your ducks in a row, and everything will straighten out. But the reality is, and you and I see it, not every faithful person gets healed, and not every bad person gets punished. So how do you deal with that? Was Job an unwitting pawn in a power struggle between God and Satan? Satan said to God, Job loves you because you're good to him. And we still, we, we still have that kind of thinking 
today. If God loves me, then he will take care of me. And if God is taking care of me, then I should suffer no pain or comfort and have all the perks of life. But the trouble with that premise is that reality doesn't even come close to this. And God's point to Satan was, have you considered my servant Job? He is a man who fears God and shuns evil. The reality is that God wants our devotion and our love, even if we don't understand the why of what's going on in our life. God wants us to love him, even though we don't understand the why. Here's a quote. God wants us to freely choose to love him, even when that choice involves pain, because we are committed to him, not to our own good feelings and rewards. He wants us to cling to him as Job did, even when, he have, when we have every reason to hotly deny him. And the reality is that we live in a broken world. We can't always fix the brokenness. It's part of the equation of human life, and that won't get fixed until we get to eternity. And until then, suffering and illness and death will simply be a part of life, and being a Christian does not excuse us from that reality. And a sick person is not an unspiritual person. So how do you deal with the struggling? How can you and I help those who are going through hard times? What do we say to people? You see, our tendency is, and I've experienced it too, when you get sick, when your life comes unglued, everybody has advice for you. Oh, you need to take this kind of vitamin. You need to do that kind of treatment. You need to do this. You need to do that. Everybody has advice, even when I haven't asked for it. You get all kinds of advice, and so you get to the point where you say, I'm not telling anybody that I'm struggling because I don't need all the advice that I'm going to get. Job's three friends, they did some good things, and they did some dumb things. They did what was good. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11. They did some good things. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard all about the troubles they had, that had come upon him, first of all, they heard. Then they set out from their homes and they met together. So they did something about it and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. They, were, they cared about their buddy. And they said, he needs us. And they were right. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. They began to weep. They wept with him. They wailed with him. They mourned with him. They tore their clothes. They put ashes on themselves because they were concerned about their buddy. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And that's where they made the biggest mistake. Then they began to talk. And they began to give advice. And basically their advice was, Job, you've done something dumb 
you need to fix it, and then your life will get fixed. They needed, they decided they needed to explain what God was doing, and they needed to give advice. And Job said to his friends, here's what I wanted from you, and here's what I didn't get. Look at chapter 6 and verse 14. Job said, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He felt his friends were attacking him. And he said, a man, a despairing man, should have the devotion of his friends. Chapter 13 and verse 34. I have no idea what I did because chapter 13 and verse 4, not 34 there. He said to his friends in verse 2, What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. Sometimes we talk too much. I don't need to explain God or to justify Him or to give advice when it's not asked for. Chapter 16, verses 2 through 5. Job said, I have heard many things like these miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. What I want from you is encouragement. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. The reality is that we live in a broken world and we can't fix everything. And that's not fatalism. Faith says that God will take us through the circumstances and take us home to be with himself. Faith sees beyond the immediate to the eternal. Job said these words in chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as golden. In chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, we read these words, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I wish we could fix it. I wish God would fix everything. I wish there would be instant healing for everything but there isn't. And I can't explain why some people get healed and other people don't. I can't explain why young people die. Why does a child have to get cancer and die? Why does anybody have to get cancer and die? Why is it? It's part of the world in which we live. The world is broken. But God guides us and God keeps us through these trials and tribulations and we know that this life, there's a whole lot more to life than this life. And frankly, the older I get, the more quickly I would like to be done with this life and be out of here. 
Now, I don't have a death wish, and I'm not going to, to do anything stupid to, to try and, and, and speed up that process. But, you know, if, if to live is Christ and to die is gain, why would I want to live? You know, if dying is gain, like, like that's the next adventure. Um, but we're going to go through trials and difficulties, and here's where we need each other. People like Phyllis need us. There are others who are going through hard times. Some of it's physical, some of it's emotional, some of it's spiritual. Sometimes we're afraid to tell people about it because of all the free advice we're going to get. We don't want advice. We just need someone to be there and say, hey, buddy, I care about you. Let me tell you just a little story. I know I'm out of time. Some of you have heard this story. I struggled with depression many, many years ago. There were many times that, that I walked out of church. I couldn't stand to be there. I was ready to walk away from my family. I was ready to walk away from God. I was ready to walk away from just about everything else. There were times that I left church. I would walk home. I would grab my gear. I would go back to town and, and grab the logging truck that I was driving. I'd drive the logging truck to church. I'd park in front of church and wait for Kathy to come out. And I'd say to her, I'm off to camp for a week, and I don't know if I'm ever coming home. My friends couldn't understand me. I snarled at them like a, like a wounded dog. One day I left church early and I was sitting in my pickup in front of the, we, we were meeting in the community hall in this small town. Sitting in the pickup in front of the community hall and one of the deacons, a guy that I respected highly, a guy that I really thought a lot of. He came out and he saw me sitting on the truck and he came over, oh man, I don't want to talk to you. Like, I'm, I'm done. And he tapped on the window, and he told me to roll the window down. And he reached in, and he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Bill, he says, I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what I can do to help you, but I just want you to know that I care. That's all I needed. I didn't want advice. I didn't want answers. Just wanted somebody to care. Let's pray. Father, I can't explain you and, and your thinking. And I don't understand why some people get healed and some people don't. I don't understand why some people have to suffer horribly and others seem to live a life of ease. But Lord, I still believe and understand that you're in control. And so help us, Lord, to help those who are struggling. And when we struggle ourselves, may our faith continue to rest in you because you know the way that we take. And when you have tested us, we will come forth as gold. And we know that our Redeemer lives. So Father, grant us courage to stick with it, to stick with you, to love you, to fear you, to worship you, even when life really, really bites. And grant us the courage and the faith to stand beside others who are going through struggles as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.